Hi there, welcome to another Osler podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. I'm here with another episode from the 21st Annual ANZIC CTG Conference in Noosa, Australia. And joining me on the podcast today is a very special guest, Professor Catherine Maitland. As most listeners will know, Kath is the lead author of the well-known FEAST trial, and she joins me on the podcast today to talk about some of her other work, including the recently released TRACT trial. Kath, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, so you're in Noosa this week to talk about a couple of uh, trials that you've got in the pipeline and some which are just releasing their results, but obviously you're best known for the FEAST trial. I would imagine life changed fairly dramatically for you when the FEAST trial was released. Yes, yes. Um, and we've been reliving those memories of the day that I presented this eight years ago um, in uh, in uh, Noosa. And, um, and I think... Uh, a lot of, I had a lot of comments that people who were there at the time said that this was one of the best moments or one of the mo- most memorable moments from the this this meeting. Um, that's that's and I you know I for me I I was still recovering from finding out the result only six weeks <laughs> before um, because uh, we were not expecting that result. It was I was profoundly shocked, should I say, yeah, um, that that this that was the result. But it was a, a good and I, and I didn't know what the response of the audience was going to be. Yeah. I was I thought, crikey, I'm you know this. I was a, a little bit anxious that they they might sort of feel you know why did you do such a trial and um, yep. yes. Um, but it's the response was unbelievable. I had a standing ovation, um, and I've, I, I still remember that, and, yeah. and, and, and many other people do. Um, so we we were very responsible. We were very fortunate to have Jeff Drayson in the audience, and I asked him, "Do you think New England Journal might be interested?" And he sent a message to his uh, to his uh, editorial board, and they said, "Yeah." <laughs> so we had, we had that fast tracked, and uh, it was out by June. So, with that, obviously, um, we've had lots of uh, feedback, and we've done a whole series of further papers on that. And I think the most significant paper that that probably many people might not have seen is the actual modes of death, um, because we were um, although fluid boluses. Uh, did not save lives and they actually uh, w- caused worst outcome we didn't see what we were we predicted was the uh, the adverse events of fluid boluses we didn't see pulmonary edema we didn't see neurological um, harms because they were being actively um, monitored for um, what we did see um, because we had a very detailed uh, uh, um, uh, adverse event reporting, um, and that there was an external committee, the Endpoint Review Committee, who looked at all of these, but they didn't know which arm the child. All of those had been blinded, so they looked at and the first question they had to say: Do I think it's related to the fluid boluses? And the qu- second question was: What was the mode of death? We had a, a, a general cardiovascular death, in other words, shock, um, profound shock, um, respiratory or neurological. And when we un- unblinded that, it, it found, we found that actually the excess mortality from fluid boluses uh, was due to cardiovascular collapse. And it was very, very predictable that the child would look... That they, the shock reversal was very rapid, um, so they had a much better shock, shock reversal compared to com- control. But, um, but then they collapsed. 
and unresuscitatable shock. Um, and so that we hadn't predicted, and we that was published in the BMC Medicine. Um, and as I say, it's it, it would, I would have liked it to have been in a higher impact because it, and, and people haven't seen that. But that has also triggered a lot of other subsequent research that we've been doing. Um, uh, Professor Fraser in uh, uh, in Brisbane uh, had had uh, had got a grant to look at what we say feast in sheep, and so <laughs> and that was published fairly recently um, in the Blue Journal, um, showing the sort of end toxic model of of uh, of shock. I mean, he also confirmed that actually troponin levels when uh, those receiving uh, saline boluses went sky high at, at around about the same time as we were seeing our excess mortality so yeah yes i mean it's it's physiological work but it it it, it very very strongly supports what we were seeing clinically Indeed. yes and i think you know what has has feast changed practice um not enough in africa i think the who sat on the fence for far too long they didn't change their guidelines, um, and they only changed them a little bit. So they still do recommend fluid boluses, albeit in smaller volumes, um, and particularly for a, a very, very tiny subgroup, uh, which they say have WH shock, uh, WHO shock criteria, which are all clinical signs, a delayed capillary refill of three or more seconds, uh, a weak and rapid pulse, so they don't say how rapid. Um, and also cold peripheries. And when we actually looked at that in the FEAST trial, that was only 65 patients. And we weren't excluding them, they just weren't there. Mm. Um, and so we have, um, last year, my, myself and somebody called uh, Kirsty Houston, and also one of the, the, the statisticians, we actually published results from... Um, observa you know, the uh, large observational cohorts to actually look at how common were WHO shock criteria. And in the many thousands that we saw, that we virtually they weren't there, and zero to less than 0.01%. And mortality was almost universally 100%, mm. except in FEAST, where it was 50%. Yeah. So for a very, very small group of children, WHO, that, that basically that hardly exist in practice. WHO continue to recommend fluid boluses. So it is very depressing, um, but uh, we, you know, everybody says you need another trial. Um, we can't do that trial in Africa. We would very much like that trial to be done elsewhere. Um, but I, you know, I still, we still keep publishing and sort of hopefully providing more, you know, sort of uh, reassuring evidence that, you know, that actually that this won't deny children who they, they think need fluids but I, I think it also very encouraged by the fact that actually it's it's initiated lots of other research for where people are beginning to think about more conservative fluid yeah, one of the one of the issues about repeating that study mm -hmm. and not doing it in Africa is the contention that um, the backup of modern intensive care practice where you might have access to hemodynamic mm -hmm. support and mm -hmm. ventilation, mm -hmm. Would influence the results of the trial. Mm. Does it, if you were to re repeat that? I study, think you'd have you'd to do it the, the, the for, for it to be relevant to WHO gui guidelines. It should be in a resource poor setting where there is yeah. no access to ICU. Yeah, uh, there, there are places that exist 
And even in places like that that exist in, in the UK and probably remote areas in, uh, you know, this is about immediate management, yes, I guess, and, and remote areas in Australia. So, yeah. but uh, it's, it, yeah, and I know that they tried to do a, 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 a pilot study, uh, they called the FISH study in, in the UK, and doctors didn't follow the more aggressive, which is the standard of care gui guidelines. So they have become much more conservative. And so really it was, they, the trial was stopped early for futility because it, this was published in um, last year in the Archives of Disease of Childhood um, and saying that, you know, we wanted to do a less aggressive um, and they followed that up. That's much better than they'd followed the, uh, the standard of care, which was more aggressive. So obviously doctors have become a more conservative, but probably the etiology of shock has changed over the time. Indeed. Mm. Kathy, you're in Noosa to present the results of your latest trial, which is tracked, mm. um, and that's obviously under an embargo, and this podcast is being released mm. to align mm. with mm. the release of mm. the paper's publication. Um, what's the context to this trial, which is mm. looking at restrictive versus more liberal transfusion practices in severely anemic kids in Africa? So um, the background to the, the, the uh, so why, we, why do we need to do a trial, that um, about 15% of paediatric admissions in sub-Saharan Africa will have severe anemia. That's a haemoglobin below 15, below, sorry, below um, 6. Um, and uh, they, uh, you, and the actual resource, the, the transfusion, uh, the, the, uh, um, blood donations, um, are well below uh, five per thousand population, where WHO recommend it should be at least twenty per per thousand population. So they really, there is there is simply not enough blood, and paediatric transfusions are um, are dominate the actual requirements. Over fifty percent of the blood that's donated goes to goes to children. So WHO generated. Um, guidelines to try and protect the scarce resource and suggest that for children who have a haemoglobin between four and six and if they're stable, they don't have a complication, they should not receive a, tr a transfusion. Um, for children who come in who have severe and complicated anemia, uh, that mean, by which I mean a, a profound anemia, a haemoglobin below four, or between four and six with uh, severity complications, then they should receive a transfusion but only 20 mils per kilo. And if you do a, a, a deficit calculation, you realise that actually it's 30 per kilo that and should be required. That's about, whole blood that we're talking about, or a packed cell equivalent. Um, it, in, in Africa in the past, in the, this, these sort of uh, areas, it, it only used to be whole blood that was available. There has been some strengthening of the transfusion services where they're being encouraged to exclusively component prepare which is not being based on any evidence. Most, of, most transfusions are given for emergencies, either, either such as, the, as, as children or um, for uh, uh, trauma, uh, pregnancy-related. And so whole blood's probably OK, but we, we, we were also... We had a range of blood that we used in the trial, and that about a third of the transfusions were whole blood. Mm. Just to give our listeners a, mm. a sense of the scale of this mm. issue, you know, yeah. often we, we focus in some of the podcasts on other research where you could argue that 
we're looking at a fairly small subset of, of patients. But in the planning for the track trial, I think you were aiming to have 4,000-odd patients mm. from four institutions over a two-year period. Mm. And the context of having more than 500 patients a year per hospital with mm. a haemoglobin less than six is mm. quite extraordinary. It seems that it's a very, very common problem. It's, a, it's a very common problem. Yes, and um, and during the the course of this study, um, every so often the hospitals, the the, the the team on the ground had to had to stop enrolment because there was no blood in the blood bank, and that was obviously one of our, you know, uh, one one of the, the uh, aspects of the protocol that we would we would check with the blood banks. Did do you have blood today? Because you can't enrol a child into a transfusion trial and say, oh, well, sorry, there's not going to be any blood for the next couple of days. Okay. So we, we actually halted recruitment on, on quite a few occasions, and that was part of, our, of, our, of what we call our manual of operations. So what's the sort of population we're talking about? What, what are the diseases that okay. bring this about, and what are the outcomes uh, as a background to this study? So uh, we... So three three of the centres were were in Uganda, um, and uh, um, that one was in the the capital city um, in Malago, the um, sorry in Malago Hospital in Kampala, um, and that has relatively the population around there is relatively low malaria malarious area, but in the two centres in eastern Uganda, um, they have a very very high background of malaria. In Malawi, we had a moderate level and very seasonal level of um, malaria. So we had a whole range, and that's that's one of the reasons why we selected those sites. Um, in Uganda, we have... Uh, it might sound like not very much, but about 1% of the population will have sickle cell. But that doesn't translate to 1% of the population coming into hospitals with sickle cell because they they far out, you know, the, the numbers coming into hospital are much, much higher. Right. And certainly in this trial, um, we were seeing um, in the severe and complicated arm, 30% of those children had um, sickle cell. Yeah. And they were met, that's the trial that they were being enrolled in. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not talking about that. But we also saw a high hidden burden that children were turning up and, and as a result of the trial we were making a diagnosis of sickle cell. I think so you were saying 25% of those were... Those are severe and complicated, but yes, had, had sickle cell. Yeah. Whereas in Malawi there's no sickle cell. So, But they've also got a background of what's uh, uh, alpha thalassemia. So that's a clinically silent anemia. It hasn't any complications, but it does drop your haemoglobin by about a gram. So these children are running along at a steady state of around about somewhere between 9 and 11. So it's not it's not just above 6 and hovering and just drops, you know. <laughs> so they, you know, for, ch for a child to come in with a haemoglobin below 6, they, they have already dropped quite a long way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all of the standard infections um, that, that you know, although the children are vaccinated, there's still a background frequency of infections. And mm -hmm. how much does nutritional um, um, component play? So there is a, obviously, yes, there's a steady state of undernutrition, um, and we were expecting quite a large co cohort of malnourished children in the trial, but actually we. There was it was only three percent, so it was less with severe um, and complicated malnutrition. There was a, it was less than we were expecting. Only about three percent had HIV. Again, we thought that was going to be higher, 
And when we looked at uh, bacterial sepsis, uh, we, we cultured all children. Again, that's about 3%. So we were, ex again, expecting a higher frequency. So what sort of outcomes do these kids have as a background? Well, so if you are admitted with a s uh, severe anaemia, uh, um, from the observational data that we, we um, used to try and obviously power the trial, it's about a 9% in, in hospital mortality. But then when you get discharged from hospital, uh, we know from a very uh, good case control study that was done in, in that, uh, that hospital um, in Blantyre in Malawi, which was published quite a few years ago in the New England Journal, um, they've, they were able to sort of uh, demonstrate that children not only have mortality in the hospital, but they have a 9% um, six-month mortality after they get discharged. But they also have a very high readmission rate. We were expecting about 15% readmissions. And so this, yeah, so a child coming into hospital with severe anemia has not only bad outcomes immediately, but also downstream. So that, that's, that was one of the reasons why we also designed a factorial trial that it looked at not just transfusions, but also long-term interventions to try and prevent these downstream outcomes. So TRACT, as you say, was a factorial design looking in one arm at liberal versus conservative um, blood administration, mm. uh, another arm looking at uh, the use of haematinics. So it's so we have two strata. We have the children who've got uncomplicated anemia. Yep. We've got those who've got severe anemia. Yep. Severe, severe and complicated anemia. Um, they all were randomised for their transfusion randomisation. Yep. Was uh, a higher volume, thirty mils per kilo, versus a lower volume. For the children who were had uncomplicated anemia, this is the group that WHO recommend not to transfuse. Half of them were randomised to no immediate transfusion control, standard of care, and half of them were randomised to uh, uh, transfusion, either a higher volume, 30, or 20. So it's so, so that they all, that was their transfusion randomisation. So there was two questions built yep. into that. Yep. Then for their long-term outcomes uh, at discharge or day five for long, prolonged admissions, we would then look at infection prophylaxis with cotrimoxazole in the same way that it's used in HIV once a day. Um, so half of the children got that. The other half didn't get any because that's standard of care. And then we were also looking at looking at better nutritional support using multivitamin, multimineral uh, sprinkles, um, uh, at, which gives supplementary levels of iron yeah. um, at, compared to the standard high-dose treatment levels of iron and folate. Yep. So what were the challenges in delivering a trial like this? I mean, this is obviously applicable uh, for multiple trials that you've conducted. What, um, what are the challenges? Of so one of the challenges was obviously having to stop yeah. the, the recruitment during times when there was, uh, there was no blood. But it was also making all the services work together. Yeah. The, the, when the trial went to the MRC, Medical Research Council in the UK, who, who eventually funded the trial, it went to them three times. And... The, the view of the board was that you you won't be able to do this trial. It's, you know, this is an impossible trial, but you have to make all the services work to actually do this because the blood 
gets collected, it goes to the transfusion, the regional transfusion services, it's got to come to the hospital blood banks, and then the hospital blood banks have got to work with the, the, the team on the ground. And, and so we had to think about all of these operational things, um, which we did, and, uh, and including people from the transfusion services on, as investigators. Um, was really essential for this because they had buy-in. Um, but we we were very clear that we were not reserving any blood for our, our trial, that we, it, we it, blood is provided for free and we did not want to distract blood away from other populations. So we had to work with the system to ensure that, yes, our trial wasn't saying that we, you know, we're, we're, we're holding, we've got a fridge here. Where we, that, people have done that and, yeah, put blood in for... Their, their studies and not allowed other people to use it. Wow. So we didn't do that. Yeah. So the other thing that we wanted to do, because we were looking at volume, we wanted, you know, what's the, what was the quality of the blood that we were receiving? So the blood is not leukocyte reduced like you'd normally have this. So as I say, yeah. this, we, we had also a third of the blood was whole blood and, and other was packed cells. We wanted to actually look at the haemoglobin level in the hematocrit, so we actually checked that. and uh, So we had an idea of what we were receiving. Yep. So yep. we looked at it all, we did a 360 degrees and we, and we were able to therefore deliver. So you delivered the results to the CTG audience mm -hmm. yesterday. What were the results of the trial? So I'm going to talk about the two studies um, so the, the first study that that uh, that, that um, the, the, in children who have um, severe but uncomplicated anemia hemoglobin between four and six with no other complications um, we found that um, compared to uh, immediate transfusion um, no transfusion or, or, and control there was no difference but overall, we had a very low mortality. Um, in the immediate transfusion, it was 1%. In the control, it was 2%. Um, there are particular reasons for this, and I think the, probably the major one is the fact that we halted recruitment, and that reduced mortality overall. The second one was that a part of the protocol for the no immediate transfusion or control is that we monitored children, we checked their haemoglobins, we checked their clinical status, and if they developed severe and complicated anemia, in other words, dropped their haemoglobin below four or developed severity signs, we then were, had to transfuse them. They had now yeah. developed severe and complicated anemia. We could not withhold yeah. transfusion from them. And that happened in 49% of the children. So WHO guidelines had never anticipated this scenario, and we and it because and it's never been sort of studied in such detail, and that's that is something that we were able to show. We were we didn't find any uh, apart, you know. So in terms of that, the twenty eight day mortality was, which is what I've just reported, but also day one eighty mortality. There was no difference. There was no difference in readmission rates, which remained high. Um, and also mortality, yeah, mortality rates to, to, to six months. Um, we had a very few adverse events um, in terms of uh, to um, transfusion toxicity events, which was quite surprising, even although we, everybody was do doing very strict hemovigilance. Um, we, yes, we, we recorded very few, which was fairly reassuring. Um, uh, 
the yeah, so uh, yeah, I talked about the, the dropping of the heme yeah, so and I we think that that probably really did affect. So just to it. clarify mm, that mm, point, mm. the background mortality that you described from the lead up study mm. suggested that the mortality was nine percent, mm. yet in the control arm you had a mortality of around two percent, mm. and the potentially that's due to the fact that the background deficiency of blood mm. is potentially making that mortality significantly worse. And in your trial, mm. where they've got constant access to blood, yes. otherwise they're not recruited, mm. that's improving that's right. their outcomes. Overall, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. And at the, the monitoring of, of the, that group of children allowed us to identify severe and complicated anemia and respond to it with a transfusion. So not only that, if you were in a conservative arm and you deteriorated, then you would have, and you had access to blood, then you, yeah. you improved as well. So our, our conclusions were that um, a, a control monitored strategy uh, or, um, that would f subsequently trigger transfusion would save the blood transfusion services 60% of blood. Um, uh, compared to a, a, str a strategy of immediate. We can't rule out that, there's, yes, there's 1% versus 2%. We can't rule out that if we did that in a huge trial that that would be significant. But we think at this point in time that it's important to say where, where you have problems with reliable and uh, supplies of blood, a controlled strategy with, with monitoring um, it, it is um, is feasible. Uh, well, I would feasible. It, it's it, it's it's associated with a two percent mortality, but that's in a context of having yes, a secure blood, blood supply. supply. Yeah. yeah. Now you found some interesting results in a subgroup that you pre-identified as well. Yes. Um, so no, in this trial, we didn't. There was no subgroups that responded differently. But what we did find is um, so in this trial, children. If you had sickle cell disease, known sickle cell disease, you all went into the trial, the arm, which is severe and complicated anemia. So yep. that was one of the complications that we said that you, they all needed. Yep. But actually in this group, there was a very high hidden burden of sickle cell. We, because we were able to genotype the children, we genotyped them at the end of the study, um, we found that nearly 25% of children, nearly a quarter of children had sickle cell disease, hidden sickle cell disease. Now that, if that could, if we could talk to the you know, uh, ministries of health and policy makers saying that if a child comes in with severe anemia, you must screen them for sickle cell in, in areas where sickle cell is very common, because this could be a way where you might be able to have a, an impact on getting them into clinic, following them up, getting them onto prophylaxis. Um, all wild sickle cell had no effect on the overall. They weren't in the worst uh, outcome. But we think it's, you know, in, in, in usual practice, actually if children were identified as, a, you know, right. the, it's, you know um, in the same way that all children who come to hospital have an HIV test because that's quite a good way of picking up HIV. Yeah. We think it's an even better way of picking up sickle cell because there's no screening pro uh, um, uh, protocol in at all for sickle yeah. cell in any of these countries. So you, you did talk about um, the impact of fever on that. So fever, this, this is the other 
This is the other trial, so I'm going to talk about the other yeah. the other uh, uh, trial, which is all part of the same one. So the the other one compared a higher volume, 30 mils per kilo, which what we'd calculated is deficit correction, yeah. versus the usual care, which is 20 mils per kilo or the packed cell equivalent yep. of uh, 15 versus 10. So we found for day 28 mortality, once again, no overall effect. 3% mm -hmm. in children who had uh, 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 30 mils per kilo versus 5%. We also didn't see any effect on uh, any of the other outcomes. We saw a superb the correction of their anemia, but that did not translate into a mortality benefit. Um, we saw, once again, very few uh, adverse, uh, um, transfusion rea reactions, and we didn't see any overload, which mm -hmm. was also quite uh, reassuring, yep. that 30, and, and particularly that the, many of them had whole blood. Yep. We did find that actually by giving 30 mils per kilo, that actually reduced retransfusion rate so uh, significantly. So there was many more children in the 20 mil per kilo that had to have second and third transfusions. So that's good for a resource. So actually a 30 mil per kilo didn't overuse a resource. There was no difference at the end, but it's those retransfusions which is actually costly to us a health service. Mm. We found that that's... Where. So while we found a no overall difference, we had pre-specified quite a number of subgroups um, that we were interested in, because this is a pragmatic trial. Yeah. It's not a, it's, you know, it's not a single cause of children coming in with anemia. So we we wanted to look at um, subgroups, and the one subgroup that we pr did pre-specify was fever, a temperature, um, auxiliary temperature measured at uh, at a at screening of thirty seven point five or more, um, and this had a significant effect on what uh, your response to um, the, the uh, higher volume. So if you had a fever um, and, uh, uh, and you received 30 mils per kilo, and this is about a third of the children in the trial, yep. then that would almost double mortality compared to 20 mils per kilo. Wow. Mm. However, if you didn't have a fever and you received 30 per kilo, that over-halved mortality. Wow. So that's... That, and that he, the heterogeneity statistic for or what says you know th this is this is a, this is a real result was many zeros <laughs> point nine yeah no, nine and so we think it's a very strong result so with, with both both uh, it's sort of uh, each one being very significant so two thirds of children if you actually had a higher volume because you didn't have a fever when you came to hospital and they also continued not to have a fever so it wasn't just a one-off screening and it's the same with the febrile group they remain febrile so we've obviously we think that we've got two cohorts there we've got a cohort that's come in probably just because they're really want needing that that, that volume because yep. they need they need the they come in because they're anemic whereas the febrile children um you know have come in and they're still critically ill and probably doing more aggressive things to critically ill children might not be a good idea a good a good thing but i have to say that we, we don't know what the mechanism is and i think that we have i can't say that we understand it we've looked at every sort of parameter that might and there's nothing that's dropping out that's obvious so we obviously need to continue to look at this um, one of the things is, that we discussed earlier is iron yep. and maybe the the the, the, uh, the, the, the sort of free iron that, that these kids are receiving in, within the transfusion might be harmful yep. 
Um, so th there are other things that we're going to try and explore. Yep. Mm. I'm sure there'll be a raft of uh, other studies to do on the back mm, of the mm, data mm. here. Just before we finish, there was one other thing that you talked about, which was the um, impact of oxygen therapy on kids with pneumonia. Um, you making the case that this is something that's worthy of study. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what might be coming down the pipeline? Um, so we're conducting a, a, a control trial. Um, it's called COAST, the Children's Oxygen Administration Strategy Trial. Um, the burden of pneumonia on the services, again, is, is high, mm. as is everything, it seems. <laughs> that No, but the burden is, is quite substantial. Um, and the, 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 the treatment for children with pneumonia is give oxygen to those who've got saturations below 90 yep. and antibiotics. And outcomes are poor, 9% mortality and an even higher 12% mortality in some places. So we'd suggested that, that those strategies aren't working. But if you actually look at observational studies that have done sequential uh, observations of our hospitals using oxygen pulse oximeters to, 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 um, to, to direct their oxygen therapy, they're not. So they're just using clinical signs to give oxygen to children. And there's... There's far too many children for the amount of oxygen that's available. Um, so we were sort of, we obviously it's the poor outcomes, the fact that the resources is, is this, once again, there's not enough yeah. oxygen to go around. Um, but um, also uh, there is evolving literature uh, that actually oxygen may be harmful. Um, and so we think that there's a scientific question to answer. And so even if you'd fixed all the health services problems and provided oxygen for everybody, there's still a scientific question around who needs oxygen yep. and at what threshold should, should we be giving oxygen. So that's, that's a trial that's ongoing. We've got nearly 1,500 into there. That's been a challenge to set up, but obviously providing reliable oxygen supplies of oxygen where you've got power issues. We've had yep. to have put power back up. Yeah. systems in and ensure that yeah, our, our children, if you enrol a child into a trial and you say, oh, sorry, no power, no oxygen, we won't do that. We yeah. always make sure that we conduct responsible uh, uh, trials. So it's quite controversial, um, I must say, because we have one arm that's, that's have a, that enrolls children, one stratum that enrolls children with a saturation between 80 and 92%, so we're taking it just above what WHO recommends into levels which would be standard elsewhere. So we say for those children, we're asking who needs oxygen. So they will be randomised to no immediate oxygen, so permissive hypoxia versus oxygen just given as you'd normally give, um, or using high flow, using Fisher and Pike or Airvo technology. And the hypothesis is this, that there's no ICU, there's no backup. Often children die of respiratory exhaustion. Can the PEEP and the, you know, the, the, you know, rest the children and actually, you know, so that while they're improving, they actually don't die of respiratory exhaustion? So Fisher and Pike have been very, very generous, and they've donated all of the, the equipment and the consumables, and they've not been involved in the design of the trial. And so I'm very grateful for their support. Mm. So it's... It's a challenge. It's a challenging trial, but uh, we've had two interim analyses, and uh, the 
the committee, the, ex the, um, the data monitoring committee, were very clear that the trial is being conducted to an exceptionally high standard. We're following the protocol, and the protocol allows children, if they if they do in the in the permissive hypoxia arm, drop their saturations below 80%, they they then receive oxygen. So they were clear that that's that's what's also happening. But also they don't have any safety concerns that we should continue as the trial has been designed. Well, we eagerly await the results. <laughs> We've had another fantastic trial from your group. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's been an honour and a privilege to interview and uh, congratulations on the results of the track trial. Okay, well, it's always a pleasure to come to Noosa. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. For more interesting interviews just like this one, go to our website at osla.force.com.